This week on Happy Sack Infused, Christopher Nolan on Dunkirk, saving film, and a Bond movie in his future? Ooh, I'm Josh Horowitz. I just saw Sammy's face, so I had to react. She's excited. Are you guys excited? It's like there's so much to talk to Christopher Nolan about. Uh, Is this a six-hour-long podcast? I wish. Um, hi, guys. My hi. name's Josh. That's Sammy. Hi. This is our little podcast. Um, yes, Christopher Nolan has just vacated the premises, but in, in your uh, time sphere, you know, it's only appropriate that the time is a little out of whack when we're talking about Christopher Nolan films. Absolutely. Uh, you're going to hear a conversation we just did with him, um, and he uh, was amazing. So his, uh, his new film is Dunkirk. It is out this week. It is, um, you know, inspired by the true events of Dunkirk, of course, and it is uh, a big ensemble with um, your favorite Killian Murphy. And, I love you know, him. Okay, calm down. Uh, <laughs> Tom Hardy, yes, Harry Styles, and, uh, and uh, Kenneth Why do you point Rana. to me when you say Harry Styles? Oh, I th- when I think of Harry, you're <laughs> the Harry Whisperer. No. I won't deny it. (laughs) Um, And it is uh, a really amazing piece of work. It's uh, See It If You Can uh, in glorious IMAX. It was shot um, almost all in IMAX. And uh, Christopher Nolan is one of these filmmakers that is, you know, just making films. He's just uh, at the top, top level. Like they are immaculately created and the the sound, the visuals, everything just comes together in such an amazing way. And it's truly – kind of a ride of a movie in, in a way that like Mad Max Fury Road was or Gravity was, so is Dunkirk. It's like basically 105 minutes of tension um, and it's uh, getting, People are saying it's amazing. Getting amazing reviews. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So check it out. You don't need me to tell you uh, why Christopher Nolan is a great filmmaker. Um, the proof is in his uh, amazing resume from Memento through the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, The Prestige, Inception, Interstellar, uh, and now Dunkirk. So we, we cover a lot of it in this conversation. It's not nearly as long as you always want with a filmmaker with this kind of resume, but um, we did we did get to cover a lot. We talked a lot about um, the Batman films. And you could be- do an hour for each movie. I know, and his it's beginnings, crazy. and, and his, he's a huge uh, James Bond fan. He talks a little bit about wanting to make a James Bond film at some point, which I think would be amazing. That would be cool. Um, so there's a lot in here. Yeah, I'm really excited that we got him. He's one of these filmmakers that's been on my list for a while. So I don't know. We're running out of people that uh, I need to get on the podcast filmmaker-wise. Well, more people have to start making stuff. That's so you the have lesson new of this. Ones. That's yeah. the lesson. <laughs> that we need more good people. That's true. So that Josh can have more podcast guests. <laughs> yeah, that's the reason to do it, right, guys? Yeah. Um, other things to mention, uh, Sammy and I are off to Comic-Con. Tomorrow. Whew. But for you guys, We're there. last week. No. They're oh, no, they're no, no. there. They, We're there. Oh, my God. You're I get all it. out of whack. I don't know what day it is. Okay, Christopher Nolan was just here. Don't worry about it. Uh, yes, as you hear this probably, we are now in San Diego and we are about to talk to a 1,000 people oh at God. Comic-Con. And uh, a lot of cool people, folks. Who are you most excited about? Are you allowed to say? I think I can say. I think we can say a few people. Okay. Okay, okay. Who are you most excited about? Well, who are you most excited? I, I know the answer. I have well, obviously a couple, but the number one yeah. people I've never met or yes. even seen in person. Okay. Carrot Top. No. I I have a Carrot Top aside. We'll okay. get into it after. Yeah, we don't have time for that. Um, we don't have time for it. Uh, Sam and Katrina. Outlander, Outlander, Claire and Jamie. Yes, I'm, I don't think I can be in the room. I don't think you can either. <laughs> this, is, this is also on the Christopher Nolan. <laughs> this is like I am very. I think there's a lot of overlap between Outlander and Christopher Nolan fans. Who are you most excited about? I don't know. 
I haven't. Or you can't pick a favorite. No, I can't pick a favorite. Um, oh, uh, I don't even. I don't know. I mean, uh, I can't even think. All that's coming to mind is, is is how silly like talking to like Craig Robinson and Adam Scott is. That'll be, be fun. That'll um, be like the Will Arnett interview. Of exactly. Last year. I was like the silly ones. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're talking to like a bunch of uh, huge casts from uh, The Walking Dead and Outlander, Outlander, and Outlander, <laughs> and Outlander, and Outlander. Uh-huh. Trust me, there. It's so all our content um, is going to be, I believe, on what MTV's Facebook page is probably the place to look. Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Okay, we're taking over. Okay, follow me on Twitter, Joshua Horowitz. I'm, I'll post all the stuff. I'll point you in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Follow Sammy. Sammy Heller. Sammy with a Y. Sammy with a Y. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, follow our adventures in Comic-Con. We're going to be... It's going to be great. Exhausted in a good way talking to all the cool folks. Um, so yes, I guess that without any further ado, let's get to the main event, which is Christopher Nolan. Um, <laughs> Ridiculous. Redonkulous. Yeah. Um, he's an amazing filmmaker and go check out Dunkirk. It's out this week. It is a truly an event film uh, worth seeing on the big screen and enjoy this conversation. He's uh, He's one of the best out there. Did you ask him about DiCaprio? Oh, I'm not listening. Okay, next time. <laughs> we do talk about Killian for a second. Okay, I'll listen. Uh, there's no official introduction, Mr. Christopher Nolan, but thank you so much for being here today. This is this is a big uh, one for me. I'm a, such a fan of yours, and uh, this film uh, blew me away as it blew most critics. Well, thank you. Uh, this has got to be a good day because we're approaching release uh, very fast, and uh, I would think there's always anxiety no matter how far you get into the business on the days before release, and then when the reviews come out, you can exhale a little bit. Yes? How are you feeling right now? Um, <laughs> no, I, to be honest, uh, you know, it never gets any easier. Um, I make films for an audience, you know, and I, and I see myself as part of that audience. And when you do that, there's no real denying that the film isn't finished until it goes out to the world and, and the public kind of tells you what it is you've done. So I... I feel very invested in the release of the film. I'd like to play it cool and sort of think, oh, you know, well, I made the film I made, but it, it doesn't work that way for me. I, um, you know, I want the film to be an event. I want people to come to it and get something out of it, whatever form that that takes. That's when the film is finished for me. Is when people tell me what it is. What it, What is your definition of success at this point in your career? I mean, there's there's the box office part, there is the critical part, and as you say, the, you're making films for an audience. Um, I'm just curious, like, at what point do you, do you say, like, this was a success for me? Can you equate that in a way, or...? You, you really can't, actually. Um, and it's different on every film. And it's an odd thing to say, but you don't know what it is you're looking for. But you sort of know it when you see it, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. And for some films, particularly when the, there's something about the film that is a little bit different or a little bit radical maybe or um, I've been through a process on various of my films I won't name names but where as you're, fin- as you're putting the film out you, as you're finishing the film you're showing it to the people who financed it the other producers all the rest you know where you're getting a certain amount of okay how's this going to work for an audience sure. I like it will they like it you know and with those experiences what you're really looking for honestly is that first person who had nothing to do with the film who you go and do an interview with like this or whatever, who gets the film exactly the way you intended. I remember that very clearly on Memento. I remember sitting down, um, I went over to England to do some British press. We really hadn't shown the film to anyone. And, and the first guy I did an interview with just got the film exactly as I intended. And it was 
for me, this a culmination of about a year since we finished the film when nobody seemed to get it or like it or want it. And just that one person is sort of enough that you know you're not crazy. It's like, okay, I did something that will speak to some people. Well, and you, and you talk about, you know, going back to something like Memento all the way up to Dunkirk. These are, these are films that are a little bit out of the box, out of even something like Dunkirk, which is obviously a, a large-scale entertainment meant to entertain the masses. Uh, but it's an unconventional, nonlinear kind of narrative. You're taking some risks in, in that will the audience go along with me? Will they be able to um, keep up with this journey? And they certainly mm -hmm. did on something like Inception, which was also, I yeah. would imagine, there were a lot of long conversations like, are they going <laughs> to buy this? Are they going to go with this? There were a few sleepless nights on that one. Right. <laughs> so I, I'm curious because like, you know, growing up and we're, we're relatively the same age. Like, I mean, I remember filmmakers. There were a handful of filmmakers that like were, for lack of a better term, a brand. They, they meant something. They meant mm. – they were, they were the reason to go to the movie, whether it was a Steven Spielberg or a – in a different way, a Woody Allen, et cetera. Yeah. And your name, frankly, today is in that that handful. It's oh, it, it's, it's that, you know, that James Cameron, that, that Christopher Nolan, that Quentin Tarantino, like I will go with them on a journey, whatever journey they feel like they want to take me on. Do you feel in some ways like a responsibility like a, a, to take risks, to say, you know what, I'm going to not go with the tried and true and I'm going to challenge myself and challenge the audience each and every time out? I don't know. I think you just compared me with myself, so I'm trying to get my head around that for a second. <laughs> it's a little Inception um, style. I was going to say, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, it's, it's interesting to talk to people about um, the idea of outside the box or the idea of, of trying to sort of challenge uh, audience expectations in some way or all the rest. Because even as you describe that, I think that's the movie I want to see, whoever's made it. That's the one I want to see. I don't want to see the film that I know what it's going to be. And it's the balance between familiarity and, and novelty, um, not to use a reductive term, but novelty, you know, newness, freshness. Sure. It's that balance that, I think as moviegoers, we always look to. It's like, yeah, we, we want to know, we want some sense of what we're getting ourselves into, that, that there'll be some adherence to um, the conventions of, of blockbuster filmmaking, or whatever, that, you know, that we're going to be entertained, essentially. Um, and I think maybe what I've tried to do is strip down or really analyze that set of expectations in terms of, well, what's really important to me in a blockbuster? What are, the, what are the boxes that have to be ticked? Mm. And I think that there are a lot of boxes that get ticked that no one really cares about, in truth. And if you make a film that does something different, that's more exciting for people. Um, certainly as a film goer, I want to see something I haven't seen before. I want to be moved in a way that, that, that I want the tricks to be reinvented, I suppose I say. So uh, if you'll indulge me, I'm sure you've talked about this a bunch, but growing up, what were the filmmakers, the formative experiences, the first time in a theater that um, – you know, yeah. your head spun around. Give me a sense of where you were at as a, as a kid. Well, I've, I've answered this question a lot of times, and I have to always answer it the same way to be, you know, sincere about mm -hmm. it. It's, you know, George Lucas's first Star Wars. For anybody my age, and I'm about to be 47, it's a life-changing experience. Um, it showed the possibility of cinema overall. And then about a year after uh, that was released, they re-released Kubrick's 2001, and my dad took me to see it on a huge screen in London and Leicester Square. And that has always stuck with me as just this being taken to a completely different headspace, you know, being shown a completely different reality uh, than the one I'd walked in off the street with. And I think the, the sheer size of that uh, just, just stuck with me. Um, and then interestingly for me, 
the next really seminal film was Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. All of this science fiction. Um, somewhere in there, you've got the Bond films. That's just right. a huge, you know, signify to me of the potential of the blockbuster and the, the globe traveling, you know, glamorous sort of filmmaking. Um, but Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, I first watched on VHS. I didn't go to this. I was too young to go see it in the cinema. You know, it was an R-rated film and, and all the rest. Um, and even on that smaller screen, something about the immersion of that that world and the creation of that world really spoke to me. And I watched that film hundreds of times, literally hundreds of times. Is it sacrilege to say that I kind of like the Harrison Ford narration? <laughs> no, it's not. It's It's honestly, you know, it is the best version of the film. It's it's imperfect, and I'm you know it seems presumptuous, and I'm a huge fan of Ridley Scott, so I don't want to go up against his view in a sense. Right. But the reality is that tension between the marketplace, between the studios, between the fights, the creative stuff that happens when a film goes out, unless they literally pull the film out of a director's hands and recut it, you know, and and you know bastardize it in some way, I think. Really, the, the authoritative version of the film tends to be the one that goes out there in, in theaters. I really believe that. And I had the experience of, um, you know, the great Curtis Hansen. He, he ran this uh, screening series at UCLA right. called the, the Film That Influenced Me. Uh, and I showed Blade Runner, and I managed to get Warners to give us an original release print. This was right before we made Batman Begins. And so my designer came to see it, you know, projected it. And... You know, even with the, the voiceover, all the rest, there are all these defining things to it that actually really I realized I'd missed over the years in, in coming to the other versions. And I think there's something about that put up or shut up. Okay, that's the thing you put in right. theaters. I think as filmmakers, well, I think for the public, that has to be protected as some kind of authoritative, definitive statement of what the film is. If they're then going to do director's cuts and stuff, that's fine. I think they need to exist in parallel, though. Did you ever flirt with a... You know, we're just going to get a Blade Runner sequel, which looks amazing to me as a fantastic filmmaker. Did you ever flirt with the idea of uh, of getting involved in that project? Uh, I didn't. I think when I was 16, that probably would have been my dream that project. Was, <laughs> you were trying it. to get that meeting um, at 16. It didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't. When I was 16, they weren't as interested in, so in a sequel. Uh, I don't think anyone was interested in a sequel for Blade Runner by anybody at that point. True. Uh, this is a film that really took its time to get into the, into the zeitgeist and into the pantheon. Um, and so... You know, as a loyal fan from when it first appeared, you, you feel a little bit, you know, protective of it. Sure. Um, Denis is a fantastic filmmaker, and uh, I very much admire Arrival. And he's also a lovely guy if you've met him. Yes. Yep. So you know, I'm really rooting for him. Um, but he he knows what he's doing. Oh yeah, every, <laughs> he knows every, what he's every time you talk to him, it's like he, you can see the sweat just coming down. But <laughs> he, he's he if there's knows. somebody for up uh, for the job, it's definitely him. Yeah. Um, I assume you, you never had the opportunity to meet Kubrick, did you? I mean, you've met no, these other ones no. that you grew up with. No. What, what would you want to talk to Stanley Kubrick about if given the opportunity? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think I – well, it's paradoxical because what I'd like to know is how he would have finished Eyes Wide Shut. Because when I started looking at the reality of how the film was finished and at what point he died, you know, he died before the scoring sessions were completed. And so – even though I think the studio appropriately put out the film as mm -hmm. his version of the film, knowing where that happens in my own process, I realized it was a little bit early. And indeed, I, um, at the urging of um, Scott Founders, actually, used to write for Variety, I, I took another look at that film because I hadn't, it hadn't really worked for me the first time I saw it. I was a little disappointed. Um, and watching it again, I realized that it is an extraordinary achievement 
but it is a little bit hampered by very, very small and superficial, almost technical flaws that I'm pretty sure he would have absolutely ironed out. I mean, it's literally things like, you know, the, the sound that runs over a second unit shot of an intersection in New York, and then there's a sort of hard cut in the sound when they cut to the, the back lot set. Right. So a lot of people sort of felt it looked artificial and all the rest. And you look at it again, and you're like, there are only a couple of small technical things that betray that that I, I have a feeling would have been ironed out. Well, knowing you know? his meticulousness, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and his meticulousness and the way he would cut his films. I mean, he literally recut 2001 on the boat from London over to New York to premiere the film and then cut it again after the premiere. And when I say cut it again, I mean, there are some really significant things. Some of the intertitles were added after the premiere. Uh, you know, Amazing. I think he cut about 20 minutes of the film. I mean, really significant things. Recalls like Terrence Malick, I think, did that on The Red Line. I think they had the yeah. list, right? Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about the the. I mean, I, I saw the film yesterday, and it's remarkable. And it's it's basically 105, 107 minutes of tension <laughs> and, and release at the end. There's a one. It's a cathartic, wonderful kind of emotional ending, actually. I would say, um, but, but it, it you know it recalls for me a few things. Like I think of the prologues in particular for you know Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises mm-hmm. and those kind of like sustained whatever they were 10, 15 minutes of tension that were just mm-hmm. uh, immaculate filmmaking. And it feels like it, this is almost a version of that at testing the audience and seeing like what you can get away with. Can you take them on that ride? Can you put them through that for 105 or whatever minutes. Well, in technical terms, that's partly it because of the IMAX format. Sure. It really is about, okay, how much can we use that? This is the most we've ever used it. It's basically the whole film is done that way. Um, and where we're not using IMAX, we're using 65mm 5 perf. So our kind of go-to poor man's format <laughs> was what Lawrence of Arabia was shot on. So it's a, it's an extremely meticulously well-made, you know, crafted sort of cinematographic experience from Hoyte van Hoytema there. Um, but in terms of content, it's actually more related to the third acts of mm. my other films because what I found myself really enjoying in the finishing of those films from The Dark Knight right through to Interstellar really is this using parallel action, cross-cutting between the storylines, I started to notice that in the third act, there's a point where the film starts to snowball. There's a point where in all those films, two and two, two plus two starts equaling five, and then six, and then seven. Right. You know, you're getting more than the sum of its parts. And what I wanted to do with Dunkirk, I'm taking on a real life story that is freighted with emotion, not just for British people who know this story, but the story itself is inherently very, very emotional. So it doesn't need theatricality. It doesn't need sentimentalizing. It doesn't need me sort of, I don't know, writing something, you know, giving giving characters words to sort of explain why we should care Yeah, the about nature it. of the situation. That within the first two minutes, you're like... And, and you're, where it goes. Yeah. And, and so you have to trust that. So what I wanted to do was, I hate to use the word experiment because this is a huge <laughs> studio movie and I really, you know, um, try and avoid words like that in this context. But for me, I suppose the gamble. Gamble's a slightly sexier word. Yeah. Putting a big yeah. Fight. The, 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 gamble. the sexy gamble of Christopher Nolan. <laughs> gamble, the gamble here was can you jump right into that third act right. and dispense with all of the preamble, all of the backstory, and just be on this ride and start that snowballing from the first frame of the movie. And that's what everything is, is designed to do in the film. It's designed to be this this sort of... Uh, very, very intense experience that develops a cumulative sense of emotion by the end and emotions of catharsis by the end without being forced, without being set up in the traditional way. Um, while I was writing the script, 
I got a lot of confidence. I got a real confidence boost from sitting in the movie theater and watching George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road. Because first off, the first couple of minutes of the film, you're know, just like, okay, there are no rules to this anymore. It's like yes. you can, you know, I've never seen a film that does anything remotely like that. Yes. You're like, okay, you know, all bets are off the table. You can do whatever you want as a filmmaker. Let's be honest. Absolutely. And that's fun. But it's a sustained tension. It's basically a, a car chase. You know, it is very much what I've tried to do with this film in that it's the third act of a bigger movie. You just don't get shown the first two acts. It's like, okay, you're playing catch up. Just jump in and experience something. And, and as you said, there's almost like it's I, I, it's weird to say it's unexpected because given the material, you would think there is going to be kind of an emotional release. But mm. it does kind of like – it caught me off guard by the end and kind of like the the way – I mean yeah. you, you know they're heading towards each other, these three different storylines. But the way they do intersect and the way there are certain moments in the end and mm. you know the, the score changes, et yeah. cetera, and, and, and it feels like you need that release at the end, I suppose. Very much. And I, and I, I wanted to sneak up on it. You know, that was, yeah. the, that was the theory is – Let's tell a very, very cold and objective set of physical circumstances where hopefully you care about the characters, you're empathizing with the characters in really the, the Hitchcock mode, which is it's the language of suspense. It's this very visual language. It's all really about physical process. It's about caring about somebody because you wouldn't want to be in their position or if you were in their position, you want them to succeed. You right. want them to carry that stretcher across that hole without falling in because you wouldn't want to fall in. It's the most visceral, I am there kind of version of it. And Hitchcock found these incredible ways to use it in his filmmaking that really sort of open your eyes to, to the, the potential of it. The example I always point to is in Psycho. You, you have Janet Leigh, the, the putative you know, heroine of the piece, is horribly murdered in you know, one of the big scenes in the film. And then Tony Perkins, who's at least complicit in the murder, whatever, cleans up very meticulously yep. the, the murder, puts the body in the trunk of a car, drives the car out of the swamp, sinks it in the swamp, it goes down halfway and it stops. And he looks around nervously. And you're afraid. Right. Oh, is he going to get caught? And that incredible reversal of empathy, that, that you know, antagonist, protagonist, it's just, how does that work? And you look at it um, and you go, okay, it works because of physical process. It works because you watched him clean up and you got invested in the difficulty of that and the dangers of that. And that's not about people talking. It's not about people telling you that you should be rooting for them rather than the other guy. It's not about backstory. It's about physical it's process. It's like being with them, yeah. Yeah. Do you take a, um, a subversive pleasure in two of the three times you've put Tom Hardy on screen? He's behind a mask most of the time. <laughs> Well, I always get that question about Tom. Nobody, nobody seems to point out what Killian has pointed out very bitterly to me, which is I've done a couple of three films where he's had a sack on his head. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Points to Killian, but, sure. Uh, points to Killian, definitely. And I said, you know, when I called him about this one, he just the first thing he said is, "Do I have to wear a sack?" On my head? <laughs> so, no. Fine, I'll rewrite the script. <laughs> exactly. But Tom, uh, I mean, Killian actually once wore a sack on his head underwater. Okay, that's the dedication for me, and that that was an inception. And. Um, <laughs> But, no, Tom, I love what he did in Dark Knight Rises. It, for me, it was just a dream come true working with somebody that daring and just radical and just able to project. You know, we had so many conversations about the mask. And, okay, what are you going to see? A bit of eyebrow, these two eyes, this bit of forehead. I can do something with this, something like that. Very, very particular physical conversations. And then I just think it's a, it's a masterful performance. And so in taking on the character of a Spitfire pilot, wanting authenticity, wanting to put the audience really in the cockpit with this guy. 
I didn't want to do what they did in all the old World War II films, which is they put the mask on, and then every time they want to talk, they pull it off, which is absurd because the microphone's actually in the mask. They would never, never take it off. And the button to, to talk is actually in the throttle. You just push a button, you know, so there's no, you know, they would wear this mask sure. continuously. And so I knew that was what I wanted to do. I was a little bit embarrassed to call up Tom and say, look, can you come and put another mask on? But I knew, I mean, he's just such an extraordinary actor. Yeah. And this time around, I mean, I think his, for me, his most moving scene in the film, you see one of his eyes, literally <laughs> one of his eyes. And what he's able to do in that moment is so much more than most actors could do with their, their entire bodies. And for the record, I remain completely obsessed with his his Bane character from Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> every we still to this day on the top stage, the voice is behind you. You know, it's never. You, you just once you have that that voice in you, you can't you can't ever get it out. I mean, it, I just I love the character, I love the performance, and I think you know this idea that he was able to get across about demagoguery and yeah. the dangers of it and everything I mean, it's just never more prescient absolutely yeah one of the scarier experiences in my life was doing the bane voice to tom's face i was worried how it would go he was a good sport about it um, <laughs> <laughs> it transcends that film into pop culture forever um have you two ever loosely joked about bond together obviously you, you're a lover of bond you've talked about one day wanting to do a bond film he's his name is always in the hopper yeah would he be a good fit for a christopher nolan bond film oh he'd be amazing i mean uh no he he really would and uh, you know, I've always loved the character, and over the years, I've I've met with Barbara and Michael, who are just the most incredible people and the most incredible producers. Um, but that's part of the problem. They're such incredible producers; they do great on their own. Um, I'd love to work with them at some point, but it would have to make sense. I'd ha I put it this way: somebody asked me this question recently. I said I'd have to be needed. You know, I mean, sure. you can't. There's no point in turning up to just say action and cut. And I think they've got. I think. They've got a really good thing going, and I love going to watch those movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you have it in your mind if and when that opportunity came about, like what you would want to do with a character that hasn't been done? Oh, absolutely. You know, I put myself to sleep at night for the last forty years trying to figure that out. But as you do as a filmmaker, you always think about other people's movies, how, <laughs> how much better you would make them. Uh, but but I'm, uh, I'm curious. I mean, without revealing too much, like what is the unmined territory of Bond at this point? You think? I would never tell you that. <laughs> That's the, those are the only cards I hold. Oh, There's the only chance I have of scoring the gig okay. is to, you know, imply that I have some extraordinary thing that nobody else has thought of. So I'm never, never going to tell you. Quentin, I know, wanted to do it a period piece. He wanted to do like Casino Royale set like in the 60s, which would have been interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, you've talked before about how like the allure – partially of doing the, the Batman films was working like with like that iconic character that could that, that gave you license to kind of go big, kind of yeah. go big emotionally. And that would I assume if you ever do Bond, that would you would have that similar kind of opportunity. I'm not saying anything. Okay. But 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 talking about, about Batman, because it is such an important three films on, on, on your resume and stands as one of the best trilogies of all time. Thank you. Um I mean what's fascinating to me is that it wasn't set out to be a trilogy and it kind of organically grew. Well this was back in the quaint old days when <laughs> we didn't it was think considered six films at a time. Well, it was considered a little bit presumptuous to say, I'm going to make this film and we're going to do nine of them in a row <laughs> and you're going to love them as an audience. Uh, back in the day, and I sound very old now, you know, you put everything into a film. You just said, okay, yeah. we're going to make uh, – by the way, I think that's what people – I actually think that's what the studios should be doing more of now. It's just yeah. concentrating on – one from not saving things for, for later films. Because if you look at what we did in the Dark Knight trilogy, we always had a thought that, okay, if people love the first one, then maybe we'll get to do another. But we weren't going to save anything. And the reason the Joker isn't in the first film 
is because it was just such a great ending to sort of tease it in sure. that way. And it's amazing to think of now. But when we showed the film to the studio, they actually did ask, they go, isn't that a bit sequel bait? Are you sure you want to do that? I mean, can you imagine a studio saying that today? And I, and I was going, no, it's not about sequel bait. It's because it's just you want to imagine these characters living on. It's just exciting to walk out of the theater thinking yeah. about possibilities. Um, and it would have been too much to try and get the, the Joker in. But coming to The Dark Knight, we knew, okay, great. We get to do that now. We get to see that character in, in this world, and that's exciting. Um, but there was never any talk of not doing Two-Face or saving him for a third right. movie or whatever. It was all like you, you put all your chips on the table with those films. And so we wound up making three. We'd sort of loosely, very loosely talked about possibly doing three right at the beginning, just myself and David Goyer and Jonah just throwing ideas around. But then we immediately took it off the table and said, okay, let's just make a great movie. And we did that, you know, all three times. Uh, the one thing about, you know, Dark Knight Rises, we didn't know at that point we weren't going to do any more. But beyond that, no, it was about just trying to make the best movie possible. We, we were talking about the the wonderful ending for Dunkirk. I'm just curious for the ending for Dark Knight Rises, which, again, was such so satisfying to me mm. in, in the way that, again, you kind of like tease a world we'll probably never see again. But like you open the mind up to possibilities mm. in terms of handing that baton to your kind of Robin-ish character. Mm. And even the last image of the, the rising platform, which echoes, of course, the title. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit of sort of like when and how that that last image or that or the ending of that film arrived uh, for you? Was that something that you came upon early on? So I'm just having to think my back my way back into <laughs> Dark Knight Rises press. Uh, no, the the ending uh, was really the first thing that I brought to the table that I had in my mind, um, and for me that is very important. It was the same with the Dark Knight. Like I had to know what the ending was to feel that we could do a sequel. And I think that is the difference um, in today's world is that there's so much pressure for sequels. There's so much pressure for IP and the continued exploitation of it. I don't think anyone is really allowed to stop and ask, okay, but can we? where does it really go? Does it really right. add something? You know? um, and I think it's unfortunate because for me, when I look at those films, and I'm very proud of those films, it's not for me to make any great claims for them, but I am proud of them. And I'm proud of the way that each of them comments that have on each other and I think I feel like more filmmakers should have the opportunity to grow with the audience and that's what we got to do we took 10 years to make this film you know so yeah. we weren't having to try and decide what an, an audience wanted out of a third film while we were doing the first film we got to you know we got to change and grow and, and you know learn from the audience in a way not, not in a reactive sense not in a direct sense but just in that you get older and sure. you change and you get to put that into the film. And so the film's going to grow with you and they grow with the audience. And I think that was fun. Interesting. It's something that the last guest on the podcast was Matt Reeves, actually, oh. who had a similar kind of experience, I think, in Apes in terms of kind of like evolving with that franchise. Yes. yes. Um, and those last two films are remarkable, I would say. Um, do you have any relationship with Matt or are you curious about sort of what he's going to bring to that that character? I don't. I, I've never had the, the pleasure of meeting him. Um, I very much like what he's done with the Apes movies. I haven't been able to see the most recent one because I've been working, but I, I like the second one a lot. And yeah. I like the first one. And I think actually, I've been sitting here pontificating about it, but I think that franchise, they have been able to do that a little bit. Absolutely. Take a bit of time, kind of think about, okay, if we're going to come back to it, what do we bring to it? And I think that makes all the difference. 
Do you have any, any other um, – I mean I, I've, I've followed you throughout your career. I know some of the projects that kind of came and went. I know Howard Hughes was something that you were very much into. I know even mm-hmm. Prisoner was a, a property you were interested in. Mm-hmm. Are either of those properties you would ever consider returning to? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean I think Universal got a bit fed up with waiting for me as <laughs> a prisoner because I kept making other films. Right. It's a very tough nut to crack as anybody who knows the property knows. But um, it, it's a fascinating, fascinating property. Uh, the Howard Hughes, uh, I, it's the favorite of the scripts I've written. Um, so it sort of sits there in a drawer and I get it out between films and read it and think about it, okay. And, and then somebody else always comes along and makes another film about how it uses it. Jerk Warren goes, does it. Well, it goes back in the drawer, you say. Okay. Give it another five years. I mean, to be fair, Warren had been looking to do that movie for, for a lot years, longer I than, think. Than, I, than I had. So, uh, But um, I, I would like to do it one day, but, uh, you know, um, the time would have to be right. And that's, you know, that films are all about the planets aligning. I mean, you asked about Bond earlier. It's the same thing. It's about sure. being in the right place in the right time. And there's, there's a lot of luck involved with that. Do you feel most confident on a film set? Is that sort of like when you walk on there, do you always sort of know this is what I was born to do? This is what my task is today? Or is there, are there any moments of feeling? Well, it's unease? interesting. I, particularly when I was starting out my first studio film, which was Insomnia, which I did with Al Pacino and Robin Williams and Hilary Swank. And it was a fantastic experience. But I was very frightened, very insecure going to work every day. And at one point, Al because I used to go into his trailer in the morning, we'd have these long chats, you know, before with everybody outside looking at their watches, going, one of these guys actually going to shoot nothing. But um, we hadn't had any rehearsal time on the film, and, and that was very much part of it. And at one point he just said to me, oh, you're home, meaning the film set, meaning this is where you were born to be. And he'd just seen that in me and sort of recognized that in me before I recognized it in myself, because I did feel nervous, I did feel insecure, but what he realized before I did is that despite all that, it's absolutely the place that I'm happiest to be yeah. and feel the most useful, I suppose. Well, I, I will say that I'm um, seeing it in IMAX yesterday and, and, and knowing your um, you know, fervent love and, and support of film, it means a lot to someone like myself who, who grew up you know, just a film geek and remains uh, such to this day. Do you take a certain pride or responsibility in sort of being a guardian along with a few other select filmmakers of that aspect of filmmaking that, you know, in this time when we talk about the golden age of TV and sure there's great TV. But when I see, when I see something like Dunkirk, I say like, I, I want to slide that across the table and say like, this is why we need film still. Well, well I, it depends on if you're talking about celluloid or talking about theatrical film. I guess I'm talking about, I'm putting both because time is short. <laughs> putting the both because time short. God, I don't have a short answer. Um, Gosh, I don't like being a particular guardian of celluloid film because it scares the hell out of me how close it came to going away. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to historically sort of take pride in the role I took in galvanizing filmmakers to try and get behind it, but we try and really spread that support as wide as possible because there are so many filmmakers who value it and love it who just aren't even given the opportunity to use it anymore by studios or line producers or people tell them it's too expensive or whatever, all this nonsense that goes on. And younger filmmakers, you know, I talk to them, they want the real thing. They want to go to that. There are a lot of filmmakers who start digitally, like Demi Chazil, and then they go to film. Um, you know, it, it's important to keep it going. And, you know, and as far as to, to, to sort of pivot to the, the theatrical experience, I mean, golden age of TV notwithstanding, I mean, TV, the way people talk about TV is sort of strange. It's like every generation, it's like the old saying about every generation thinking they invented sex. I think every generation thinks they invented TV and there was no great TV before. And it's very self-congratulatory. It's always 
Right now, it's at the expense of movies. I don't know why. It used to be, we used to have to answer questions about video games 10 years ago. It was right. all like, well, you guys are dinosaurs. It's all about video games now. And then eventually people realized they're just different things. They're just different experiences. And they always have been. And they always will be. You know, virtual reality isn't going to put films out of business. It'll be its own thing. And sure. that's fine. Um, movies, what defines a movie? It's, it's a story that plays in a movie theater with a group of people watching it. I prefer for that to be on celluloid and for them to project the celluloid, but it isn't the technical aspect that defines the experience. It's the unique combination of your subjective response to the imagery that's up there and your magical empathy with the other audience members. You're feeling that your awareness of them reacting to the story in their own way, you reacting to the story in your own way, and you're sharing this experience. And that's why... It's like with restaurants. It's like you don't want it to be too crowded. But you don't really want to eat in the empty restaurant. You know, where is everybody? Do, do I not know something? Exactly. You you want you want a, a decent size audience in there for that really unique experience. The technical side is a little bit separate for that, and that's why it's not going anywhere. It's it's important to us, yeah. and it has a visceral quality. There's a very particular there's a very particular rhythm uh, and form that films take that you can challenge. And with Dunkirk, we've tried to challenge it and stretch it in different ways or, you know, change it a little bit if we can or bring something new to it. But at the end of the day, it's a really robust and important form of entertainment for people and will always be so. Going out to the movies is one of the great entertainments in American culture. The last great film you saw on the big screen? New one? Oh, it's a while since I saw anything because I got deep into working. But I, you know, I talked about Chazelle earlier. I saw La La Land three times in the movie. Beautiful piece of work, right? Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And finally, is Michael Caine upset that uh, you gave Harry Styles his role in this one? <laughs> I heard they were both up for the same one. And Michael was very, uh, very generous in in understanding that we make a film about eighteen year olds. Um, but I will say. I don't know whether you noticed, but there is a, there's a tiny little bit of Michael Caine. I in the thought film. there might be. Okay, there's, thank you for confirming that. Yeah, we we needed just a just a hint of Caineness in the film to complete it. There's a little bit there. We need, yeah. we need something in there. Um, it's uh, it's always good to see you, uh, and congratulations on the film. Honestly, it's it's an amazing piece of work. Um, if people have not heard the reviews, I mean, check them out because because everybody's in love with this one, and Dunkirk is truly an event, and it's a it's a really emotional, powerful film as well. So uh, I always look forward to what you have coming up next and uh, look forward to, talk to you, talking to you again soon, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>